bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. Hey, my leading story in Canada this episode is a new amendment to Bill C-21, the Federal Firearms Bill, was tabled on November 22nd, yesterday. This legislation has got uh, folks in a bit of an uproar, um, thinking that it has prohibited all semi-automatic shotguns and rifles. So that is that is not the case. So the bill's tabled. It hasn't been passed yet. But it is a bill that is addressing the prohibition of apparently millions of more firearms that Canadians own that are semi-automatic rifles or shotguns. So this is apparently how the wording of the bill is specifically um, being tabled. Uh, A firearm that is a rifle or shotgun that is capable of discharging centerfire ammunition in a semi-automatic manner and that is designed to accept a detachable cartridge magazine with a capacity greater than five cartridges of the type for which the firearm was originally designed. This is for semi-automatic rifles and shotguns only that will accept a magazine, an external magazine, that can hold more than five cartridges. It's not passed yet, It's not targeting your typical semi-automatic duck hunting shotgun, which by law can only hold three. However, folks are in the firearm proponents industry are saying that this is a step closer to going after your three shell semi-automatic duck hunting shotguns. Uh, I don't know for sure, um, but this current prohibition that's tabled, if it's passed, may affect some 22 caliber uh, firearms. If you want to know more about uh, the, pers- the specifics of the bill that's being tabled, um, go to the bcfirearmsacademy.ca website. They've got a write-up about it, and most importantly, Get a hold of your MP. Uh, Again, it's simply a bill that's targeting uh, recreational sports shooters and isn't really addressing crime or the source of the illegal firearms that are getting into Canada. That's been the main argument that the firearms industry and firearm proponents and lawyers and stuff uh, that I've watched and read are saying about all of these amendments to Bill C-21. So on the fish conservation front, some unfortunate things have been happening over the course of the fall. So in British Columbia, the salmon returning to the Nikas River, uh, which is just north of Bella Bella on the central, south central coast or central coast of British Columbia, they were initially, the Pacific Salmon Commission was projecting a run of 9.8 million fish this year. Uh, into the the Fraser system and then that was adjusted down to 5.5 million and again reduced to 6.8. 
then a bunch of record low rainfalls, the heat, uh, the dry weather, the low precipitation, and a lot of the rivers uh, on coastal British Columbia became low, very low in levels, uh, very warm when the salmon started to migrate up for spawning. So the salmon that were returning to the Nikas River um, had been declining for quite a few decades. Uh, average of about 47,000 fish in the 1970s down to just 750 in last year. People found they estimated about 65,000 dead pink salmon in the Nikas River system in October. They were floating dead. Uh, they were in very shallow warm waters uh, where apparently those waters would have been much deeper and colder at this time of the year. So they had done some initial assessments of those fish and had determined that those fish died before they even spawned. So some unfortunate news uh, for pink salmon that were uh, going into the Nikas River system kind of falls uh, in line with some of the concerns that the Pacific Salmon Commission had about the, ret the pink return overall uh, into the Fraser system uh, as well. So uh, unfortunate year for pink salmons uh, being hit by low water, warm water, and that just led to the death of 65,000 fish in um, in the Nikas River system alone on the coast of British Columbia. Kind of switching gears to sturgeon. Uh, of course, sturgeon are an endangered species in British Columbia. In the Nechaco River late this fall, biologists had found 10 sturgeon um, dead along a 100-kilometer stretch of the Nechaco River. A bunch of theories have been developed around what caused the deaths of these sturgeon. Uh, some, again, were pointing towards uh, warm water temperatures. But other scientists have also said that there's been other hot summers that they have not observed uh, the warm water conditions triggering similar die-offs. So pretty significant loss for the Nechaco River sturgeon, uh, 10 fish of an endangered species as large, old age, as long lived with such slow reproductive systems as a sturgeon uh, could be a pretty significant hit to that population of sturgeon in the Nechaco system. Now we all probably heard stories during COVID how there was spikes in the lockdown, how there were spikes of people taking up uh, hunting, people taking up fishing and spending more time in the outdoors. One of the the downsides of that is a story, again, coming off the coast of British Columbia about the endangered rockfish. And there's a number of rockfish conservation areas, um, preserves, no fishing areas off the coast of southern British Columbia around the Galliano Island area in the Gulf Islands region. And apparently the illegal fishing of these rockfish in the closure areas, in the conservation areas, areas had spiked significantly in 2020 and 2021 during COVID. So rockfish, uh, like the sturgeon, are very slow going, uh, growing. They're slow to mature, they're long lived, and they stay very close uh, to a small uh, home area. 
recovery of rockfish populations that have been impacted by overfishing, illegal or not, is a, another significant conservation concern for rockfish populations. There was a high-profile case uh, during the pandemic of some folks that were caught illegally fishing rockfish in a closure area and they were each fined $5,000 and one of the people uh, that was charged was uh, had their sailboat uh, which they were fishing off of seized. Now a little different story about salmon returning to their home waters. The salmon that returned to the Klukshu River in the Yukon uh, just south of Haines Junction, Yukon, apparently had very high numbers uh, this year. The sockeye estimated at more than 25,000 had returned to the Klukshu River. Uh, not a historic run, but is more than what has been seen by uh, First Nations who have a fishing village uh, there that had been there for thousands of years, more than what they've seen in decades and decades. So it's kind of a good news story. Uh, interestingly enough, one of the, the, the theories around large runs in the Yukon is that potentially the Pacific salmon are looking for cold water. They're looking for cold water, which is indicative of the streams that they need to run up to spawn and this summer and last summer all of the very warm waters and low temperature or uh, low water levels in the typical spawning rivers along the west coast of British Columbia were forcing salmon to carry on up into the Arctic and coming right around uh, Alaska and running into um, like the Mackenzie systems that would bring fish into the Yukon. I don't know whether or not that's true or not. It was just kind of a hypothesis that I read about why we're seeing super low levels and high mortality uh, along the coast of British Columbia, but we're seeing kind of these, these highs or record numbers of runs uh, in the Yukon. So kind of interesting. So some bad news stories and some good news stories for salmon uh, this, this year. So switching gears a little bit, uh, here in British Columbia, uh, a couple years ago, there was a tremendous amount of advocacy and, and outcry over the province's continued clear-cut logging of old-growth forests in the province. Um, there is the old-growth forests that are associated with the endangered caribou habitat that were still being logged, and then just generally old-growth, high-productive old-growth forests. So the province, the government at that time came out and sort of made like a big announcement that it was going to defer a whole bunch of old growth areas in the province and, and set them aside. The original announcement, uh, if I have this right, that was given by Premier John Horgan at the time promised would quote unquote fundamentally transform the way we manage our old growth forest lands and resources. The deferrals were, were made to the Premier following recommendations from a report made by an old growth technical advisory panel in 2021. 
a media outlet here in British Columbia had been FOIing uh, some of uh, emails and documents and stuff out of the government around the public release of this announcement of old growth deferrals. And it was kind of shocking what they uncovered. They, 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 they got some emails uh, that basically showed that there were folks in the government that were actually trying to soften or hide some of the information to do with the old growth deferrals, the amount of old growth in the province, so that it would not be released to the public. One of them was an email from the province's chief forester who did not want to publicly release the information about what the historical amounts of old growth were in British Columbia and what was left. The original historical baseline data had British Columbia with 25 million hectares of old growth forest of which there is around 11 million hectares remaining today. And the Chief Forester's email was very clear about not wanting to release that figure of where we, what we used to have and what there is left in the province now. Um, some other emails pointed to the fact that the province had asked the authors of this independent old growth technical advisory report to remove some of the figures um, that were showing the percentage of deferrals that were overlapping with timber harvesting areas that were already going to be logged. So that was one of the controversies that uh, environmentalists uncovered in this deferral strategy is the old, the, the, the province said, well, we're deferring all of these areas, but they were actually approved to be logged. And so there was apparently some jockeying in emails back and forth within the government wanting to not um, portray or show um, those numbers of the old growth deferral areas that were actually going to be logged anyways. The public consultation uh, that went out for um, the old growth strategy announcement when it first came out uh, received about 1,600 uh, responses from people in the public. So it's a very important topic for biodiversity conservation in British Columbia. It sort of echoes some of the themes that I've reported on before about the accusations that have been made against the Federal Department of Fisheries and Oceans in redacting and changing information that was in a scientific, scientific technical report um, given to the minister about the status of the interior Fraser River steelhead runs and the and the critical um, low numbers that those species had and 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 just sort of the 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 redacting and you know sort of withholding of information so it's kind of um, a bit of a parallel between uh, the old growth and the uh, interior Fraser steelhead um, reports and you know, numbers being filtered uh, that reaches the public. So that's obviously concerning. About a year ago, I reported on a temporary prohibition on the selling of rat poison in the province of British Columbia. So due to some studies that had been done in around 2009, where scientists were, sh were finding that a tremendous amount of owls had rodenticides, the poisons uh, in their bodies, in their livers, as well as a number of other predators like uh, weasels and coyotes and scavenger birds and 
squirrels and uh, different animals like that were all getting rat poison into their systems probably from eating rats and mice that have died from when homeowners or businesses had put out a rat poison bait. So that's a concern for wildlife conservation for sure. And just, um, you know, from an animal welfare perspective, I guess you could put it, that the province put on a temporary ban on the use of that. Uh, so it was an 18-month ban. During that time, the province had a public consultation uh, engagement session, I guess, where people could write in and uh, answer some questions about the use of rat poisons. Well, just recently this fall, the government uh, f made a final decision on that, and the province has decided to ban um, the use of rat poison permanently in the province. So that will become a product that will no longer be available on uh, hardware store shelves or your farm and garden shelves. The, there's organizations that are out there that are putting out information to show people how to rodent-proof their homes and their properties and their businesses uh, better rather than just relying on rat poisons, uh, rodenticides that are obviously getting into the food chain and working their way up and affecting other wildlife. Now, I've covered stories about geese in urban areas and how urbanites across the country have kind of taken up this uh, love to hate Canada geese sort of uh, scenario in, in, in parks and urban areas uh, across the country. So a small community in British Columbia uh, called Oliver, it's at the sort of at the southern end of the Okanagan, uh, close to the U.S. border, they have problems with Canada geese on their public beaches and park areas. So this fall or late this summer, they put out applications for six Canada goose hunting permits. And that allowed people that were granted the permits to approach land areas, uh, landowners, sorry, and different um, land classification systems around the community of Oliver to go hunt these geese that were living in and around the parks in town try to cut back on their numbers and obviously if they're hunters that are taking these geese they're also getting them for food so uh, that's kind of cool it's one of the things I've been advocating for um, is to use in these urban conflict areas is to use hunting as a management tool and allow hunters for free to go take out these problem geese problem coyotes problem deer if you want to you know call them that so that they can get utilized um, as opposed to you know a government agency or a contractor killing these animals and then the lawyers will get involved and go well we can't give them to people to eat in case you know they get sick or yada 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 and then so they just throw them in the landfill so i am much more of an advocate for allowing hunters even if they have to get a little bit of training if they're you know given certain parameters for for firearms obviously a shotgun the lethal distance of of pellets even from a 12 gauge is only going to be like 60 75 yards you know at most so a lot different from a safety perspective of using high-powered rifles there are places in the united states where in their urban hunts for deer they only allow archery or slugs 
um, so that they don't have high-powered uh, bullets that can travel long distances. So uh, good on the little community of Oliver. I've not seen any stories uh, or information on how that turned out. Some of the hunts are happening this month and next month in December. Now, the town of Vernon in British Columbia was recently um, identified as one of the top towns in British Columbia with the highest number of black bear conflicts uh, that resulted in black bears being euthanized. So the town of Vernon has recently updated uh, several of its bylaws and they're using bylaws to further deter residents from feeding wildlife, even if it's accidental. So in British Columbia, the Wildlife Act prohibits the feeding of dangerous wildlife. So bears, cougars, wolves, coyotes um, are all classified as dangerous wildlife. So if you're feeding them, a conservation officer can charge you under the Wildlife Act. But other animals um, that are not classified under the Act as dangerous, so geese, turkeys, and even bird feeders that are feeding small songbirds that make a big mess that end up attracting uh, deer that become a problem or end up attracting bears, uh, which this is mainly aimed at as, as the bear problem. Provinces' hands are tied in charging people for feeding these non-dangerous wildlife species. So the town of Vernon has used its regulatory mechanisms of bylaws under the Municipal Act to bring in prohibitions on the feeding of wildlife in its town to try to reduce the number of black bear conflicts and black bear deaths. So the new bylaws apparently will target residents to protect attracting bears from fruit trees, nut trees, bird feeders, and compost piles. So then if there are violations, it's actually the town's bylaw officers that can then ticket and issue abatement orders to the residents of the town and the conservation officers don't have to get involved. And very progressive, the Municipal Act in British Columbia is a very powerful tool in addressing problem bears and this issue of them being attracted to garbage, fruit and nut trees. Uh, cities can be taking care of this through their own enforcement mechanisms. So uh, that's pretty cool. Good on you for the town of Vernon, British Columbia. Coyotes were once again in the news uh, across Canada. Uh, this fall in Ottawa's Riverside Park, there was some incidents this fall of uh, coyotes um, grabbing pets, um, weirding people out uh, by their uh, aggressive behavior, coming in close, approaching, not being scared of, of people out uh, and enjoying the parks and stuff. They ended up euthanizing coyotes or a coyote or a few coyotes in uh, in and around Ottawa's Riverside Park. The statement that the, the municipality made is that habituated coyotes that no longer fear humans are being targeted. There will be a limited time frame. Uh, I think they close some areas down so they could go in and most likely trap uh, the coyotes and then euthanize them. In Burlington, Ontario, there was the first reported case of a coyote attacking a human this year and they've been seeing a significant rise of conflict between humans and coyotes as well. Um, Burlington has already killed several coyotes 
um, that they had identified as exhibiting aggressive behavior. The town uh, has a task force for coyote conflict that includes police and wildlife control professionals. And again, the same as the Stanley Park issue, they've been urging people in Burlington to not be feeding coyotes because that's been identified as one of the primary causes of the increase in aggressive behavior and the attack on humans. In British Columbia, there were two people earlier this year that BC conservation officers charged, uh, arrested and charged with feeding coyotes in Stanley Park after all of the problems they had with them last year. Uh, two people uh, appeared in court uh, this year to, uh, I guess, have their more formal, their trial dates set. I have not seen anything published about if that trial has taken place. The two individuals were given um, orders to stay out of Stanley Park and it's yet to be seen how the courts are going to deal with them as far as monetary penalties for breaking the Wildlife Act, in this case, of feeding a dangerous wildlife. Jumping over to Alberta, a story on rabbits. So there is this really wicked viral disease called rat, rabbit hemorrhagic disease, and it's getting into the feral and domestic European rabbit populations in Alberta. Uh, it's highly contagious. It's fatal. Uh, apparently it just goes through and wipes out colonies of uh, European rabbits and various domestic breeds. So you can have farmers that are ranching rabbits for fur and meat, and then you can have folks that have rabbits for pets in both sort of the urban and rural farm areas, common to see rabbits running around, and apparently this virus is getting into them, uh, these, these groups of rabbits, and just wipes them out. There obviously is a concern for the, uh, it's called the RHDV-2 strain of the hemorrhagic disease uh, virus. It's, um, it can affect wild rabbits. So in Alberta, that would be snowshoe hares in the foothills in the mountains and um, jackrabbits on, uh, out on, on the prairie grassland areas. It causes the viruses, it's kind of gross, it causes organ damage and internal bleeding. And the mortality rate is about 70 to 100%, experts said, with um, most infected rabbits die within a matter of days of getting it. If you do see a dead rabbit, it's died relatively short and it's got blood stains around its nose. It's a pretty good indication that that was the hemorrhagic disease. Uh, experts from the Canadian Food Inspection Agency said, uh, while the risk is considered minimal to wild rabbit species, there is a chance that it could spread to native species of rabbits and hares. They said that the virus will kill colonies of feral rabbits uh, as well. Um, but it's not likely to have the opportunity to proliferate through the native species like hares and jackrabbits. So I would deduce that wild hares and jackrabbits are maybe a little bit more buffered against a viral outbreak, an epidemic like this, because they don't aggregate together in large groups as opposed to feral rabbits 
uh, obviously rabbits, meat rabbits that are being farmed are going to be in close quarters and you get a viral infection in there and it goes through the whole population where out in the wild, the rabbits are, um, the hares and the jackrabbits are a little bit more on their own, dispersing and keeping away from each other and a little bit of breeding here and there or whatever, and probably not as high risk. So that's good news. That would be devastating for something like this disease to get into, like say the snowshoe hare population in the boreal forest of Alberta. Uh, a couple years ago, Curtis and I did a podcast on the Hunter Conservationist podcast with two scientists that study snowshoe hares. Uh, super fascinating. They basically said in the boreal forest ecosystem, the snowshoe hare is the is the is the kingpin. It's the ecological um, cornerstone of the entire food chain of the boreal forest. So everything from um, you know, up to all of the, um, the lynx and, um, wolverines and everything like the, the ecosystem, uh, it's, you know, it's like a, a keystone species is the word I'm searching for here. A lot of people, you know, will say, oh, grizzly bears and wolves are the keystone species of an ecosystem. And, and these snowshoe hare scientists said in the boreal forest ecosystem, your snowshoe hare is your keystone species. And so the numbers of species that rely on snowshoe hares in the boreal forest, as well as trappers that rely on, on lynx and wolverine and uh, coyotes and stuff to make their living off of it would be absolutely devastating for snowshoe hares to get a human-caused or, um, you know, domestic virus go through and, and devastate their population, so... Remember a couple episodes ago, I was talking about a really controversial uh, incident that happened in Canada's Northwest Territories. So there were public complaints came in about poaching of caribou. Uh, I believe it was in the Bathurst herd in the Northwest Territories that had this, as the herd was moving across the NWT, it had this zone like a clo hunting closure zone around the herd, not like a geographic area, but the actual closure bubble followed the animals. Environment and natural resource officers got uh, wind of people poaching caribou within that mobile closure zone. So they went in, um, found quite a few um, dead I think 10 dead carcass or 10 carcasses of the protected caribou. Uh, some of them, they didn't even have the meat taken or the meat was processed and just left laying there on, on the tundra. And they executed, they got a search warrant and they executed a raid, I guess if you would call it, on a First Nations hunting camp about 150 kilometers away from this no hunting zone. It was what First Nations said was a forceful invasion of their camp and they feel it was an invasion of their constitutional rights uh, to have this search warrant executed on the hunting camp. It was very traumatic for elders uh, that were in the camp and children apparently. And there's been a lot of outcry in the media um, over officers handling of this investigation. Since that story, since I covered that story, courts have squashed that original search warrant that was issued to environment and natural resource officers in the NWT. So they were allowed to collect samples from the caribou that were killed 
uh, I deduced that they were looking for samples in the camp. Um, they would try to match via DNA. And the courts basically nullified that original search warrant. And I had read one of the stories, which meant that then the resource officers had to destroy um, or relinquish all of that evidence that had been collected because it was essentially collected illegally. So there's still some possibilities that the First Nations may file some civil lawsuits against the, the officers or against Environment and Natural Resource Department of the federal government over this camp raid. So staying in Canada's north, I also covered a story a little while ago about concerns that Nunavut hunters had over the iron ore mine from the company called Baffinland at their Mary River mine in Nunavut. And they were saying that the ice-breaking activity that the mine was doing to get ships in to haul the ore out in the spring of the year was having a huge impact on narwhals. Um, they were having trouble finding narwhals to hunt. They were seeing significant declines in narwhal populations, which was actually backed up by some of the actual studies that were being done by the mining company showing declines uh, in narwhals in the area. So the Nunavut hunters were asking for the mining company to cut back on on shipping traffic and ice breaking in the critical period during the springtime when the narwhals are coming back into these bays uh, where the hunters would, would uh, be looking for them. Then right on the heels of that, Baffinland Iron Ore Mining Company had applied to the federal government to have an increase in its ore production. So just recently, and since I covered that story, um, the Nunavut's review board, um, so the review board that would review these mine proposals, approved the proposal from Baffinland Iron Mines for a temporary increase in ore production again at its Mary River Mine. So they were originally permitted to mine up to 4.2 million tons of ore uh, each year. And over the last couple years, and again, for this coming year, they've been approved a temporary increase up to 6 million tons per year. That's possible that that's going to translate into more ice breaking and more shipping traffic in and out of the Mary River mine, which is going to upset uh, the Nunavut hunters uh, as it may continue to drive narwhal populations down. Unfortunate story there in Nunavut that um, mining and jobs sort of superseded uh, what the hunters were saying over narwhal conservation and their opportunity to harvest enough narwhals uh, to get food for their families and communities. I just want to do a bit of a shout out to Nicholas in Nova Scotia for writing in and giving me his support for this podcast. Really appreciate it, Nicholas, and um, hope you enjoy this episode and looking forward to hearing from you again. So hey, everybody, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada, and we will see you in the next episode.